Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston. I am the intern whisperer and the uh, founder of Employers for Change. And today's tip of the week is about employee recognition. Employee recognition doesn't have to come exclusively from the top. It's often even more impactful when recognition comes from, you know, other leaders in your company, the peers, and even from your customers. So you can look at this as peer-to-peer -peer recognition. It's one of the most effective methods of infusing recognition into your cult culture. So peer-to-peer -peer will also dramatically reduce the amount of managerial overhead required to make sure everyone else is being recognized for the work they do. And what does that mean? It means that your fellow coworkers are saying, you know what? Miriam was just so awesome. She came over here and she helped us and explained this particular concept to us. We really didn't understand Web3 and she made it so simple. And she may, somebody may put that even on social, then it becomes even more peer-to-peer -peer recognition because it's going outside of the company. Anyway, in a recent customer survey, 73% of respondents said that they spend just two hours or less on, on admin each month of making sure they recognize employees. If that doesn't convince your leadership team that you need to invest in recognition. We don't know what's going to work here, but please make sure that you spend time recognizing the people that you spend so much time working with. So our show is always all about education, innovation, and the future of industries and jobs. And today our guest, I'm so excited because I met her through Prepare for VC, is Miriam Nusrat, who is the founder of Breshna Io. She's going to tell you the whole story about that. She empowers users to create, share, and monetize their own purposeful Web3 video games with no code and at lightning speed. So think Canva for video games. So welcome to the show. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Isabella. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so, so much for the invite and for the awesome introduction. Oh, so nice. So I usually start the show with what are five words that you would use to describe you? Okay, let's see. All right. So I'd say tech entrepreneur. Um, that's the first one. Um, innovator. I feel like that's probably the second one. Self-starter, which is linked to that. You know, it's like you have to self-start to innovate. Um, problem solver. Um, looking at things from that problem perspective. And cat lover. I'm, I'm a huge, huge cat fan. I'm one cat away from being a crazy cat lady. So <laughs> definitely a cat lover. There's a possibility a cat will walk over the screen between us, right? That's a very high possibility. And I apologize in advance. They've learned not to shut my Zoom calls. So at least there's that. So we won't get disconnected. But yes, we may get distracted. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I don't mind. I like cats. I like cats. that are like dogs, actually. You know, they come when you call them. So I have one of those. The other two are very cat cats, but yeah. I have one of those that follows you around. <laughs> yeah. Those are always nice. So why did you use those words? Were you like coming out of the womb already uh, an innovator? Your mom's going, whoa, who is this child? Um, I feel like with the innovation aspect, like, I mean, an innovation is not just coming up with something new, right? It, it could also just be applying 
the same method to something new or applying a new method to, to an old problem, right? And everything. And I feel like I've just had this knack, um, maybe not out of the womb, but very early on to, to it excites me to do new things and, and to try new stuff and to try new methods. And I think that even in my, during my studies, during my career, I've always had that and it's linked to that problem lens, right? So I look at a problem and I can't just look at it. I have to do something about it. And, and that kind of gets me on that innovation path of like, how do we solve this? And how do we do something new about it? And like, you know, like a friend would, would be talking to me and venting to me and be like, oh, you know what? I'm not happy with my career. Or I'm not happy. And I'm like, all right, so then what do we do about it? I'm always the, what do we do about it person? So I think for me, it's, it's very, um, it, it's very exciting to innovate. Mm, I do too. And it's so empowering. It's just incredibly empowering. So where did you go to college if you went? And then how did you get to being running a company? What's that path in between there? And, and be sure to tell us about the company too. Yeah, uh, it's it's been an interesting path. So I actually, um, Isabella started, so my, my undergrad was in econ from the London School of Economics. Um, my first master's degree was also in econ from LUMS, which is a Pakistan, um, you know, a business school in Pakistan. And my second master's degree was international development studies from George Washington. So econ, econ, international development, there's no gaming in there. There's no blockchain in there. There's no tech in there. Um, and basically right out of college, I started working at the World Bank. And basically, I worked in education policy for 12 years across 22 different countries, sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Middle East. And, um, you know, that that to me was was my goal career. It was like the, the, the place I wanted to be. I mean, the World Bank, it's actually really funny because when I was, if we rewind, when I was in grade three, my dad uh, came back from an executive course. And he put in front of me three logos, like three newspaper clippings. One was LUMS, which was the school I went to for my econ, the Pakistan school. Then it was Lund School of Economics. And then it was World Bank. I'm in third grade. And this dude is like, you're going to be an economist and you're going to go at the world, work at the World Bank and you're going to have like policy making decisions. And, I, and it's kind of amazing that I went check, check, check. And I did all three of those. And I ended up at the bank and I was like, this is it. This is the gold standard of what my dad wanted me to do. And with that innovator brain, one of the things that I kept realizing throughout my career at the bank was that unfortunately, purposeful communication. So how we educate or how we raise awareness on financial literacy or climate action or health or, you know, I mean, any of these, it's so boring. That last mile problem, like we put all of this effort into designing the project and everything. And then when it comes to, okay, now raising awareness around it, it's always like, here's a brochure, here's a workshop, here's a PowerPoint presentation, and now go change your behaviors. And as someone who grew up playing games like SimCity, I knew that I was learning about urban planning without even knowing I was learning about urban planning. And that stuck with me, right? And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, like, games are such powerful communication tools and we're just not leveraging them for for all of these purposeful you know behavioral change exercises that we're doing so eight years ago i started looking into 
um, video games, uh, serious gaming, it's called, which is right. kind of an oxymoron because it's like serious and gaming because gaming is fun. But either ways, serious games are purposeful games. I started looking into those. And one of the things I realized was that games are very expensive to create. Yeah. Um, like it takes half a million dollars to make like, you know, even a simple mobile game or something. And that was when it dawned upon me that it's not that people don't want to leverage video games for marketing or training or education or social impact. It's that these games are very expensive to create. So I put together a team. I come from Pakistan originally. So I'm like, okay, you know what? We have high quality talent, but it's capital efficient. So I put together a team of developers and we brought down the cost of game development. And we, we started a gaming studio. And it was a not-for-profit and it was gaming revolution for inspiring development. And we said, you know what? That's great. And we're going to make mobile games for positive change. So we made mobile games on menstrual health, um, you know, um, financial literacy, climate action, COVID-19 awareness, animal welfare. And these were games in all sorts of languages, compatible with $20 smartphones made for a global audience. And we were like, you know what? We're just going to be the game gaming studio. And that was all amazing. And we were like getting all this traction, <laughs> but... And this brings me to that last part of my of my career and my journey was one of the things we realized, Isabella, was yes, we brought the cost down, but it was still fifty thousand, sixty thousand, twenty thousand dollars, and that's still a lot of money when you think about education or social impact or not for profits. And then it was taking us very long to make these games, and I was like, you know, the thing is, most of the games that these people are asking us to make are not Call of Duty or World of Warcraft. These are simple games like hey can we make a climate bingo or can we make a myth buster about menstrual health and everything and I said you know what I'm non-tech myself I'm, I'm an avid user of Canva uh, you know I use Canva for design I use TikTok for video what uh, Clubhouse did for audio where is that where is the no-code solution for video games and that was the birth of Breshna so Breshna is a platform that allows people to make their own video games without any coding, without any design skills, and at lightning speed. The word actually means lightning in the Pashto language, which is my mother tongue. So there it is, like Breshna democratizes content creation through video games. So that's how it went. It was like econ, international development, understanding purposeful communication, leveraging video games, and then breaking the cost, skills, and time barriers to making purposeful video games. Man, you are a superhero. I'm going to have to make sure I make a cape for you and send it to you, and then you can you're wear so it. <laughs> you're so sweet. You're awesome. No, thank I'm you. I'm going to figure it out. What's your favorite color? It must be purple. Purple. Everything's purple. That wall. Everything's purple. Yeah. 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 It's all about that. So, uh -huh. so that sounds like a crazy good ride. What I like though, that your background was a blend of economics, because that's always about forecasting and you're following trends and you're on point with everything that's going on in the world and you're capturing a, an opportunity to create something. And I, I remember when you and I were in first in the prepare for VC program, you know, I said, so it's like, it's like Canva. Or, you know, it's going to be like Powtoons. That's what it is. And you said, yes, exactly. And I went, oh, okay, I understand that. And that's so easy to use. Absolutely, exactly. Because I think communication, like everyone's hungry for new ways to communicate and engage their audience. And it's simply like, why should there be a skills barrier when, you know, anyone can make a website, anyone can make a video, anyone can make like, you know, I mean, design. 
it should be the same thing for video games. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So your, you created a game for the prepare for VC. I know we're going a little bit off track here, but prepare for VC group. And we have that game and it is going to be on the launch of the new site that is coming out pretty soon. So there, your product is going to be out there and it's going to be so much fun. I love that. I just love, love, love that because I think I love the prepare for VC community. I love what you are doing. And I think like, just all of that coming together, it's just been so awesome. And again, it's about allowing people to engage their audience in a fun way without, you know, I mean, without having to spend $50,000 on a simple video game. So that that's the whole plan. Yeah. And it's something that children can actually be able to build. I think you saw that you also went to the Arizona State and GSV conference. Did you place? I didn't look that one up, but did you place? So we were in the elite elite 200, the, the, the ed tech startups, right? So it's very interesting, Isabella, if you look at it, um, when we launched Freshnam, it was a little bit like throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? So, I mean, our MVP was like, all right, don't know who's going to use it, but here we go. And this is the whole build-in public mentality, which is so different from the build-in stealth um, that we had seen in tech for years and years, right? So it was like, okay, here it is. Um, it's a product where we're very scared of it might break. We have no idea, you know, and everything. And the LinkedIn founder says, if you are not embarrassed of the first product you launch, you actually launch too late. Yeah. So we were definitely um, very, very cautious. And we gave like seven disclaimers of it's an MVP and it might break and blah, 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 blah. But one of the things we saw through that was when we launched it, we saw two groups that just like latched onto this. One was this whole edtech community, teachers, parents, and students, right? So we have teachers from South Africa making a simple math game where they're like, let me catch all the even numbers and dodge all the odd numbers. And they're like turning their quizzes into video games. They're turning homework into video games and class and assignments. But on the other hand, you have content creators. You have this generation of 16 to 25-year-olds that are basically, you know, um, they're, they're, they communicate on TikTok. And they were the ones making Trevor Noah and makeup and Halloween video games. And they were just all over the place being like, here's a video game for a prom proposal. And here's a video game for a birthday. And here's a video game for an NBA trivia. Because this is the generation of content creators. So actually for ASU GSV, we went wearing our EdTech hat. Um, but like, you know, overall, Brashna, uh, we, we've been to several conferences because it does cut across no code content creation, gaming, and now also blockchain. Mm -hmm. So I wear several different hats depending on which audience we're talking to. Yeah, I know you are. So I put in the chat, I want you to make sure you grab that link. And just so our listeners and viewers know, um, people watch our show on YouTube, our YouTube channel, but they listen to the show globally around the world. And one of the upcoming conferences here in Orlando that I think that you should consider coming to, it's called ITSEC and it's I-I-T-S-E-C. And that stands for, um, I'm making sure I get everything correct here, um, Inter-Service Industry Training, Simulation and Education. Now they have a whole game division and this is the biggest thing in the world that is built around simulated games and serious games like you were mentioning, there is also a conference that uh, they're one of my customers to the serious game conference. And they've, and just so our listeners know, serious games means games that you can learn from. So think Duolingo, but you know, it's fun. So yeah, you totally get that. 
So anyway, you should apply for next year, the 2023, because I'm one of the game judges. I've been judging games here for a little while. And the games that I have been fortunate enough to judge for the, this is my third year, um, they've all won first place. Like I'm so lucky. So I really think that you should go and put it there. They have a group called first and they are, um, a nonprofit also that builds robots, kids K through 12. And then they have a college age and they're all there building robots. So there's this whole education sector that you could fit in easily. You could present a white paper and you can also do there's just so many opportunities and you can partner with the industries that are there are defense um military education um uh, healthcare and we're now seeing more of the um sports industry coming in so i think you should come to it next year like put it on your radar I would love to. Thank you so much for sharing that, Isabella. And it sounds super, super relevant. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Are you in the United States right now? Yeah. I'm in DC. I'm in Washington, DC. Okay. So if you decide you want to come to it, it's just right around the corner. Um, I usually volunteer at it and or I get a media pass. And so I when I get a, a press pass, I go and I interview people on the floor and then I just share like, this Ooh. is what's going on and the future of AR, VR, simulation, games, all of this. That is, that sounds so exciting and good for you. That sounds really awesome. It sounds like you're right in the belly of the beast. So that's, that's yeah. really amazing. Well, I, I think that you to. and I have the same kind of interest, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, more, the more and more I've talked to you, there's a lot of overlap and, and I guess that's why we're friends. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. Anyway, so our listeners know that definitely you should check out the uh, upcoming ITSEC 2022 conference. It's over in Orange County Convention Center. And it will be, uh, when they listen to it, it will already have been over, but they can plan for 2023. And you can meet Mary at that one because she'll be there, I'm pretty sure. There you go. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. And um, they also, if you enter into the game, you win money. There's money you can win. That's always a good incentive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ma'am, it is. For sure. Yeah. So anyway, going back to it, you told us about, you know, your company for sure. But how many people do you have? And tell us what that journey's been like, because you've raised money and that is hard work. Yes. So um, I lead a team of 25 uh, developers and designers. Um, these are people that I've been working with, like, you know, when I started my gaming studio, I, you know, everyone was like kind of freelancing it, moonshining, side, side gigging, all of those things. Like we were basically just like hustling and we were like, Hey, we got a project. Do you want to work with us and everything? And that gave me an opportunity over the eight years to work with some very talented, very high quality developers and designers from Pakistan. So when we started Breshna, I already had like a roller decks of all of these amazing developers and designers that I had an amazing relationship with and my brother um, who's my COO manages them in Pakistan in person so it's not that crowdsourced model like when they're like there's no electricity I'm like yeah, actually there is electricity it's you know I mean we're, we're good and everything so it's, it's really interesting um you know I've, I've it's again I've worked with these people for many many years and it's just they're they're the fuel behind all the all the momentum I have. I'm non-tech myself, so all the credit for the product goes to them. 
and yes, we have raised. Um, so we started printing Breshna in March of 2021. We got our first check in April of 2021 through an accelerator program, actually, uh, which like you know partners with the VC, where the VC writes a check and you go through that accelerator program. And since then, we just kept building and raising and building and raising. And we did this thing on Twitter that's called Stacked Safes. Um, there are a lot of opinions around it on Twitter, um, but like Gail and Elizabeth Yen talk about it often, where it's like, if you're one of those founders that isn't able to close your round in like three weeks, which is like, oh my God, like I have a line of like, you know, uh, VC is just waiting to write my check and I'm just going to close the whole round. Then that's something that you just continue to raise your valuation as you build. So you have to show progress valuation goes up, valuation goes up, and you continue to raise and build at the same time because you don't have that luxury to just close around. So it still builds that, um, you know, that slight FOMO because, you know, people want to come in at lower valuation. So you're still able to close, but then you, um, even if you don't meet your mark, you just keep building and everything. So we raised around $2.5 million, um, you know, over the span of uh, around six months. Um, and yeah, we have some really exciting investors in our cap table. There's like there's split between Web3 and Web2, but um, you know, it's led by Blockchain Founders Fund and 11 tribes. And then we have people like Paris Hilton, um, and like you know, um 11 basically table management, which is Bill Ackman's family office. So just a bunch of really cool investors on the cap table that we're excited to build alongside. So that's super interesting. To me, six months sounds like it's maybe a normal type of a time frame to close around i don't know i mean i think so it's also about how much you jam in there like i think i had around 218 investor calls after that i just stopped counting like yeah. you know it's like where i mean it's just about how many you can get on right so you still do it in spurts between that like it's not every day on for six months you're fundraising because you still do you know phases of it yeah. and there's yeah, but and then you go back to building and then you do another version or something, but it was around six months for the seed round. Mm, that's good to know. Yeah, I'm raising my first institutional round. So, and I had a meeting this morning with my rev officer and I said, you know what, I think I need to change the amount to a different amount. He said, yes, you need to increase it. So um, yeah, I'll talk offline with you on that one for sure. We should absolutely. There's a lot of, mistakes and tips and lessons learned that I'd love to share with you. Yeah, I would like that. So why don't you tell our listeners about Web3? There's a lot of discussion out there. Um, I have not done that much research into it. So I know you're going to be educating me. And I'm always looking to see how is that impacting anything in the training and learning space, which we mutually share also. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one of the things um, uh, that I at least saw when I was entering the Web3 space is there are a lot of Web3 experts, um, you know, and it's it's very, there's a lot of, um, you know, mystery around it. There's a lot of enigma around it. It's like, oh my God, now you're building in Web3 and it seems like it's something all the way in the future. But honestly, like if you come to think about it, Web3 is at the core of it. You know, I mean, there was this idea where I really like this um, concept of it, where web one was read, web two was read and write. So like, you know, if you were writing on Instagram, like we as the users started creating content. So we were like writing and creating and web three is about read, write and own. 
right? So that decentralized ownership. So right now on Facebook, um, you know, if you create content that belongs to Facebook because it lives on the Facebook platform, if Facebook shuts down, boom, that's it. Like, you know, all your stuff goes with that. And with video games is really relevant. So like World of Warcraft or Call of Duty, if you buy um, skins or like weapons or something within that video game that lives in the server of that game, right? And everything, it doesn't live on the blockchain. In Web3, you end up having ownership of those assets, you know, even if the, so even if one day World of Warcraft disappeared, your assets, because they live on the blockchain, those NFTs continue to have a value outside of the ecosystem. So to me, at the end of the day, it's about decentralized ownership and transparency, right? Like all of a sudden, you own what you create, and then you're also able to transparently, um, you know, I mean, share it. And the world knows that what you've created is actually yours because all of these transactions live on the blockchain. In the training and education world, actually, education was one of those first use cases of blockchain technology where one of the things that just like clicks just right off the bat is credentialism, right? So storage of credentials. And something that was really interesting, this was when, back when I was in my, at the World Bank, the conversations that were happening was, if you look at these um, areas like Jordan or like, I mean, Syria, where you had these Jordanian, the refugees coming in, these were refugees that were leaving with no documents, right? They didn't have the time to pack up their stuff and leave. And imagine if all of their records, education records, health records lived on the blockchain, then that gives a level of credibility and transfer of those documentation that they, that just goes with them. So I think one of the things that's been talked about a lot in, in education is micro-credentials and how credentials can live on the blockchain. But um, what's really exciting to me is this idea of uh, I think educators and training content, content creators, when we talk about it, we talk about it as if it's some new concept. But if you look at it, teachers have been content creators for decades. Mm -hmm. They've been creating so much content and they've been putting it out there. They've never made money on it. I mean, they've rarely made money on it. And, you know, it's like they haven't owned it often and everything. And I think that with Web3 is changing, where you now see teachers saying, here is what I've built. Here, I've put it on the blockchain, I've minted it, it's mine, and I will make money off of it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that is a huge opportunity. And that's kind of with Prashna, what we're leveraging is if there's a teacher that makes a math game, boom, like if that game blows up, go monetize it, go own it and monetize it. So I think it's that removing that middleman of, hey, the publisher or yeah, the I platform. I don't have to go to <laughs> Unity or I don't have to go to Steam or wherever no, and go, just go build it there. No, it's like, it's, it's on my, my, my own personal website. Page. Yeah, exactly. Wherever it is, like, you know, you, you get to own it and you get to monetize it and you get to attract your audience for it. So I think um, content creation and training is going to be a big one. Micro-credentials, obviously. Uh, and then also just the metaverse, right? Like, I mean, how will training transform and how will we do it in a much immersive way in a much more fun way and in a much more engaging way. It's like we're seeing so much come out, like uh, Facebook is doing the meta quest now, immersive is is actually, um, I know the founder, it's a really cool startup that's doing workplaces and with VR and AR and everything. So I think a lot of cool stuff is happening and, and um, training and education will look very different um, over the next 
couple of decades. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that going to school on a campus is going to be something that's for those people that truly want to have more of a socialized experience. Um, so it's socialization for sure. But it would also be something that would be more of a, I'm going to say a status thing too. You know, it becomes more very elite to be able to do that. I could not agree with that more, um, Isabella, because I actually did my bachelor's degree as an external student. So it was a distance learning program from London School of Economics. So I had fellow students that were at the London School of Economics LSE campus in London. And then I was in Pakistan doing the exact same, going to the exact same exams, studying the exact same thing. But I did not have that experience because I did, could not afford to be on campus to pay that fees and everything. And apart from it being way harder because then you're just self-studying your way through it and then competing with people that have the resources of the professors and everything. It's also something where you do, um, you don't get that social interaction. So I think distance yeah. learning um, now, I mean, in today's world, it would look very different because I could probably tune into the classes. I could zoom into them. You know, I could I could talk to my professors and in, the, in their metaverse office or something. So it, it will look very different, but I agree with you. It might just be, you know, if you're there in person, it might be something that's a status thing. Yeah, yeah. I can see it changing. I, I've seen a lot of it change already. And I've been in education for um, 26 years, middle and high school, um, secondary school, but also in higher ed. And I've seen a lot of changes. It, it always cycles back. Anyway, coming back here, how do you define diversity and inclusion? Two separate concepts. Very interesting. So diversity for me is, um, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's actually really funny, right? Like as, as a woman of color, as, as an immigrant, like, you know, I mean, there is a definition of diversity that's, that's usually like, oh yeah, like, you know, diversity of um, in a team, right. like, you know, you should have all the race and color and religion and like, you know, gender and all of that. But to me, I think it's um, what's really important is diversity of thought and diversity of lived experiences, because I think um, a lot of times, like even even if I look at myself, this this whole idea of oh, uh, woman of color, right? So it's like it was really interesting because um, when I started off grid, uh, right, like a year into it, um, we actually got this amazing opportunity to uh, go to the Clinton Foundation CGIU. The, uh, Clinton Global Initiative University and we applied with like our ideas and everything and a year later they picked like out of 700 projects they picked five students that present on stage with President Clinton so it was like a big deal for me I was like super excited it was my, like literally I think I'd only been in the U.S. for a year and a half I was still a, in doing my second master's degree and I went and I shared the stage with President Clinton and I like you know presented my grid which was the not-for-profit at that time it was like such a baby and I presented it and I mean you know and there was a lot of media hype around it right so it's like there was this picture and everything and I still remember there was this one journalist who reached out with a draft article for what they wanted and it, it said like suppressed Pakistani woman um, you know breaks away from the cultural restraints and share stage with President Clinton and um you know and he and he and the whole article was about like her father suppressed her and her brothers you know this, these are opportunities she could have never had in Pakistan and everything and I got on the call with the dude and I was like 
you know, my dad in third grade was telling me that I'm going to go work at the World Bank. I mean, he has literally been my biggest supporter and everything. It's like, I mean, it is absolutely like this idea of a brown Pakistani Muslim woman. Um, every brown Pakistani Muslim woman looks different, right? So just just think, I mean, this token idea of diversity, I think that's 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 not very appealing to me. What's appealing to me is diversity of thought and lived experiences because mm -hmm. everyone has a different lived experience and that's what brings a lot of perspective to it so for me um that's kind of how i define diversity and inclusion is very interesting to me it's about um allowing anyone to play in the arena so even if you look at gaming right gaming is a very interesting like i mean um as a very male dominated um you know industry and everything and often i find myself um with this whole imposter syndrome of like man do i belong i like you know i don't spend 7 hours playing call of duty i don't like stream on twitch like i am not part of these esports skills do i really belong in gaming like i'm i'm more of a casual gamer i am focusing on the 36 year old woman who wants to play candy crush on the metro like do i belong and then i always remind myself that belonging does not mean i have to fit in with one group belonging means i'm in the arena right like as long as i'm playing the game um you know i'll win in whatever way i define it and i think that's inclusiveness is allowing people to enter the arena not necessarily being like come be a part of our little group like it's just like i mean and then they will create they will bring diversity of lived experiences and then and then all of a sudden before you know it you have an inclusive space mm -hmm. i think that's beautiful i really like well first off i want to go back a step and just tell you so you explained web three in a way that i went oh it's so easy to understand you broke it down in simple terms and that's great thank you so much um secondly when you're talking about the definition of inclusion i've i've had to see that also for myself in a different way, I moved into an area of town here in it's Winter Park, and it's the 32789. It's the Rodeo Drive of Winter Park, you know, area. And as I was walking through that neighborhood, I went, man, I feel like I don't even belong. And I went, wait a minute, what am I doing? I do belong. I decide if I belong. So I'm on the same page with you on that. We all decide if we are supposed to be here or not. And if we say that we're not, then we're the ones that are hurting ourselves. Nobody's hurting us. Exactly. And in every space, especially, and this is especially true. I mean, it's kind of funny that like both questions followed each other. Web3 is so new that the walls haven't gone up yet, right? There's, there's the gatekeeping isn't really happening. So Web3 is a place where there's a, there's a seat for everyone in Web2, whether you're non-tech, you're tech, you're an artist, you're a teacher, you're, you know, doctor, whoever you are, there's a seat. And I think that it's, it's like you said, you decide whether you belong or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So cool. So cool. So what is the hardest lesson that you've had to learn? And to me, entrepreneurial life is the hardest thing because we choose it. We choose to torture ourselves. It's very accurate. We do choose to torture ourselves because it was like, because I mean, again, like I, I had an amazing career. I had like, I mean, the World Bank was never a job. It was a career, right? Like, I mean, it takes care of you. You do it for the rest of your life. You retire, you have a good pension and then boom, like, you know, cushy, cushy life. You fly business class, you travel the world. It's like, I mean, things are good. Um, But yes, you choose to torture yourself. I think, um, you know, I mean, 
entrepreneurship is hard and i think like you know it's it's um they say it's like that pushing that boulder up up a mountain and in the beginning it's just you and the boulder is big and then all of a sudden more people gather around you and the boulder becomes to be get a little bit smaller and you keep pushing it and then you reach this point where where then after that the boulder is moving ahead of you when you're going downhill and you're the one chasing it and they all, all often say that's product market fit that it's moving so fast that there's so much demand that you have to catch up to it um so yes it is hard pushing that boulder but my hardest lesson probably was you know um learning how to say no um before I wanted to say yes you know I think uh, with entrepreneurship especially in your initial initial days when you know you you're, you're going to take every advice advisors there's there's a lot of advisors out there you know there's a lot of people that want to write checks uh, on not very friendly term sheets and and I almost fell um, to to a few of those conversations because when you don't have the benchmarks I didn't, I didn't come out of an Ivy League. I had never went to business school. I did not know what term sheets looked like. And I got a couple of term sheets where I was like, oh, this is so exciting. That's a million dollars. But a million dollars for 50% of my company, that is extractive, right? And it's extortion. just, very, it's extortion. Exactly. It's That is the sharks that you want to avoid. And I am so lucky. And this is where, you know, prepare for VC and just the Twitter community is I would just, dm people and be like hey what do you think of this and they were like whoa whoa no walk away like abort mission and everything and i think that um that was i almost said yes and very quickly i had to learn the lesson of learning how to say no um even when you know i mean it's so it's so validating to know that someone's willing to put a million dollars in your business but at what cost you know yeah. that's the question you want to this is not free money this is not a donation if anything, you're doing them a favor because guess what? You're going to work very, very yeah, hard. We're doing the work. Multiply their money, you know, and give them returns of like 20, 40, 100 time returns. And all of that hard work will be you. So you are giving them the opportunity and the honor to put their money into your business so that you can work hard. I love how you said that because I know when I go into my meetings, I've met with somebody who said, yeah, I'll write a check for 40,000 for 30%. I said, no, no, what? No. no, why? You know? And so many times I've had some, you know, a couple of people where I talk about uh, equity, even within, you know, my, my own people. And I said, so I'm going to leave it. So it's just me when the money comes in, then you're going to be getting your shares and that's how it's going to go down. But I was told, and I don't care if I'm sharing it on the air, put aside 30% for investor funding, put 10% aside for your employees. And then you leave that 60% over there with you and you protect it. <laughs> it's like. Absolutely. And that's what, and the thing is, Isabella, it's not just because you want to be greedy, but no. that's what's going to make you fundable at series A. Because if you've already diluted before you get to series A, no one's going to touch you because by the time you get to exit, you would have diluted down to like 5% and you're not going to work hard enough, right? So founder exposure is this idea of having enough equity with the founders that they remain incentivized to continue working at series A, B, C, D. There's a lot more funding rounds coming up. And if you've diluted all your money between these early stage angels and VCs and advisors, then 
kudos to you because that's the only money you're going to get in the door. So then might as well sell it (laughs) before you get to series A. So I think I completely agree. And there's so much um, bad advice out there. I think that's one of the things a lot of underrepresented founders are underfunded and over mentored, um, you know, and there's a lot of bad advice out there. So also, again, learn how to say no, trust that gut. You'll you'll feel it in your gut. So agree with you. I've had people come up, oh no, here, I want to be, you know, one of your mentors. And I, I sat there in my head and I'm going, no, I, you know, you're not teaching me anything. I, I haven't already learned in the five programs I've been in. So no. And my, and I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You have to say it politely, right? Yeah. I, you know, I will definitely reach out if I have something that I believe that your expertise will be able to, you know, certainly help me. Exactly. If it's irrelevant, don't take it. And if it feels too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Like trust the gut and, and go check. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so true. So true. So true. So we're going to this other question is, what do you want to be known for? Current, present time? What is it that you want to be known to be? I think you're a thought leader. So I would pick that one. <laughs> you're awesome. I want to be known for breaking barriers. I think, um, you know, I mean, like we're breaking the barrier, the skills barrier for people to be able to communicate with video games. I want to break this um, knowledge barrier of Web3. You know, it's like there's a lot of people that are intimidated by Web3 and they're, they're, they're staying, they're watching on the sidelines. And I want to be, Rashna should be that on-ramp into video games, that on-ramp into Web3, that on-ramp into purposeful communication. And I want to I want to break cost, skills, and time barriers for people to tell their stories with video games. Mm. Yeah, We're going to do these that. next two questions relatively fast so we can take a break and then go and jump into the future of. So I, it's so hard to believe. We've been like talking for 45 minutes almost. <laughs> I, I don't know if you realize that or not, but it's pretty close. It's to fun. It's fun. Yeah. That that it's just shows good, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, it is fun. So what do you want to be remembered for? And this is like later, you're going to exit. What is it you want people to say? I think at that point, like that goal is definitely empowering the next hundred million people to tell their stories through video games. Like it's that one. It's like, you know, where is it going to be? Like, I want Rashna to be a household name, not because it's the product that I want in everyone's hands. I want video games to become a norm for communication because games are a universal language. There's 1 billion people playing games every single day, but only 200,000 people making games. And that's why you continue to see the New York City skyline and the yellow cab and the white dude in every other game that you should play. And the only way that you're going to see that diversity of content in video games is by democratizing content creation through video games. So 100 million people making games. That's that's what I want to be known for. That is, and you know, it's a huge industry for people to get into. And by making it something that is simple, um, you don't have to go to two or four years of school to do it. You can, it's just like a Wix website, honestly. You know, you, exactly. you, can, you can be a graphic designer with two years, but you can also just have self-studied and be able to build beautiful websites and beautiful games. Uh, that's exactly what this is. Yep. So I think that really kind of tied into the last question, which was what was the impact you want to have on the world? You just want to make it accessible to everybody. For sure. For sure. 
Absolutely. So we're going to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and we will be back. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And now in this part of our show, we talk about the future of jobs and industries in 2030. Now, that seems like a really crazy, you know, year to have 2030. Should we be talking 3000? But we'll deal with just eight years from now, right? Instead of like, you know, 170 and yeah, 1070. Yeah, that would be huge. So what do you think the future of work is going to look like in the game industry? It's going to be certainly really accessible, I would think. Yeah, I think accessibility is definitely a huge one, right, Isabella? But if you look at it, um, you know, like if you look at the trends, right? So there was the great resignation that we went through with COVID, like where a lot of people started becoming entrepreneurs, started doing, started picking up their hobbies and turned them into, so work went from something that you go to and that you don't enjoy that kills your soul from nine to five to being something that you, that you get passion out of, that you get energy out of, that you enjoy. And I think that if this trend continues, I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, like the credentials don't matter anymore. The degrees don't matter anymore. Web3 has created jobs community like I mean community moderator community manager community mobilizer community you know it's like I mean there's just so many um new jobs that are coming up that actually uh I mean I I don't even know what course you would do in school to become a community manager right and I mean I guess a comms course or something hospitality honestly I think hospitality yeah. lends itself so easily because you're welcoming people in you're making sure that they're talking you know it's just a different it's online. It, I, I actually, I completely agree. And you wouldn't think of that when you're like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. Maybe I should do an MBA. But exactly like you're saying, it's it's this whole cross culmination of skills. And I think if we look at the future, uh, for sure, it's going to be borderless, right? So, I mean, already this idea of global workforces doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter where you, what time zone you're in. I mean, the Prashna, um, you know, we, we joke that there's not a single hour in the day where someone isn't working on Prashna because it's exactly true. Even with such a small team, someone's working on Prashna all the time because we're spread across the world. So I think there's, you're going to see a huge, huge, if we look at the future work like 2030, which is not that far away, we won't see offices. We're probably going to see a lot more collaboration. We're probably going to see a lot more lateral um, organizations, you know, that are just more decentralized. And again, if it's ownership, you'll probably see collab, like the DAO model, right? Like, I mean, what you see right. now is like okay, owned by the people, owned by the community, governed by the community and more of that. There is, I think, I still think there's a balance between centralized governance and, and DAOs. Like, I mean, um, there's always a balance that's needed because you do need someone in that leadership position, but you will see the spectrum going more towards that bottom-up governance and, and workforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we saw that happening with just the police, right? Because there was a lot of discussion of, well, because of George Floyd's death and a lot of the discrimination that's been out there 
it's like, well, do we really need police? And I, I'm going to say, yeah, I personally think we still do. But I think that the model needs to change quite a bit because I like knowing that even though I may get stopped for some stupid ticket, I still like the fact that there's somebody out there that I can go to and say, hey, I need help. And they're authorized to do this. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing about accountability. And this, like, actually, today I was reading an article on self-custody, right? So, like, I mean, if you lose money on the blockchain, if you do a transaction, there's no helpline to call. Like, that money is gone. That's an irreversible transaction. So it's a huge responsibility. It comes with a lot of perks because then your money is yours, but it also comes with a huge responsibility. So I think that's also an exciting part of how our life is going to be very different because we've become so used to... Where's the helpline? And guess what? In a lot of Web3, there are no helplines. So it's like, I think that taking responsibility back and accountability, but at the same time, having some level of control is, is going to be very exciting. So I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that Facebook will have real humans. I know they're called meta though. I really know that. But that I could actually call and get a human right now. All they do is send me to a bunch of forums and you have to find somebody that's sometimes smarter than you to figure out the problem because it, it YouTube is the same way, honestly. So my, yeah, my Facebook business account has been banned for three months because of a passport not being uploaded, which has been uploaded for three months, but it's still there. But yeah, I completely agree. I mean, yeah. So, they're breaking they're breaking down anyways the central system so might as well decentralize mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i get it i get it so when we're talking about well you kind of covered the remote blended yeah. but i will tell you when we were talking when you were discussing it yeah i do see it being more of a like an open center where people can go personally i'm an extroverted uh, personality and i need truly need i was extremely depressed with the um having to stay in the, I do not like to work and sleep and live in the same space together. I like to go to a different place. And I also like being around people. I may work in an office, but I like the ability to come out and be around other humans. So for me, I like an office, but it, more co-working or more shared space, things like that. Exactly. And it's, again, it's hubs for that thought leadership, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't have to be someone who's your boss or your colleague, but it could be someone you're collaborating with. Like maybe you and I are sharing an office one day. Like, what that do I That would be so cool. That would be really cool. <laughs> and I do like DC. Yeah. There you go. That's an invite. <laughs> yeah. And then you can always come down and visit in Orlando, Florida. I, and that's also an invite I'd happily take. It's one of my favorite places. Very cool. So one of the things I'm wondering about in, in DC is robots. Have you seen them around anywhere? And I don't mean the ones that are just, you know, cleaning the floor in Walmart. Um, here in Orlando, we actually have robots in restaurants that go and deliver food. Very cool. I have not seen it in DC, but what was really interesting was I was, I went to Saudi for the first time for a tech conference. And I was like, you know, I mean, um, really didn't expect the level of innovation that I saw. And it was so interesting because at the airport, um, you know, the they, they received all the speakers, they took them to a lounge. And then you had this robot going around with like literally trays and trays of like pastries and like, you know, I mean, Middle Eastern dessert and like, you know, little tea cups. 
And it was like, it was going around and then you would like, you know, take that or then you would plug in your order and everything. And, and then it was the same thing that like another robot came and it took your boarding passes, you scanned it and it like sent it to the baggage claim. So you didn't have to go to the baggage claim and it actually just brought our bags. So I was like, whoa, this is the future. So yeah, it was very (laughs) exciting to watch. I mean, have my bags fetched yeah. and get coffee through a robot. Like, I'm like, I'm down with that. Yeah, I can see a lot of really good stuff. To, to, well, here in Orlando, we have autonomous driving vehicles and some select little uh, pocket communities where they've been testing them and also um, little mini buses, so to speak. So we have a lot of things that are going on that people don't realize. Is They just yeah. kind of think of us as a place for Disney world and universal. And we're so much more than that. <laughs> I am one of those people, unfortunately. Yeah. I was like, Oh yeah. Disney, right. <laughs> oh, no. We have NASA here. We have that it's conference that's been going on for years here. And then because of our convention center, we have some of the biggest companies and, and events that are actually happening here in Orlando. So, wow. you know, we have, the defense industry, a lot of corporate headquarters are here in defense. So yeah, this is like the place to be and you have great weather. Nice. There's that plug for Orlando. You sure this show is not sponsored by the mayor? (laughs) It is not sponsored by Orlando Economic Partnership. Right. There you go. (laughs) It is not. I am on that. I am on the Orlando Tech Council, which is part of Orlando Economic Partnership, but it is not sponsored. So it's an authentic passionate Mm -hmm. plug for Orlando I appreciate that yeah so what ethical dilemmas do you think are going to be coming up here because of the things that we do so we have all of these games out there and people are playing them they're learning they're educating but it's also collecting like a lot of data what do we do with that data how do we protect it I think that we should have always some kind of a whiteboard session that's going on as an industry and go, well, how do we make sure that we're not abusing our users and customers, but we're also making sure we're giving them what is healthy. Yeah. And this is kind of where like, you know, I mean, if you think about it, um, Isabella, like data, I mean, especially with web three, all of that data is going to live on the blockchain and it's become very decentralized. I mean, all the transactions, like if you think about it, if you have someone's wallet address, you basically know how much money they're holding, what their assets are, right? And everything. And it's like become very, very public. And already we've seen like, I mean, there's a huge skepticism with the Web3 industry because of how many scams, because of how many frauds, because of how many hacks that happened, right? And everything. And so there's a, I completely agree, like whether it's, um, you know, if you if you look at, especially like you were saying, if you look at Brashna, Brashna has content creation. So there's a huge responsibility where we're now transferring it to our user of saying, hey, create content that's meaningful, create content that's entertaining, but please do not create content that's harmful, right? right. And we can put in as many bad word libraries and, you know, picture sensors and images and all of that that we want. But at the end of the day, when content gets created at large, large scale, Roblox is having this problem where, you know, rooms are being created that are highly inappropriate um, that, you know, kids are being exposed to. So there's a huge 
thing as soon as you go to user generated content there's a huge ethical line of like how do you ensure how do you moderate content without having so many guardrails that you dictate it right so that's that's the whole content creation bit then there's like you said data privacy and also storage and also who owns data right mm -hmm. so as we move from web 2 to web 3 central exchanges don't own data it's not living in one centralized world it's on the blockchain it's out there it's public but then how do you use that data in in a way that's meaningful and how do you leverage it and i think that's probably where communities are forming but if you see a lot of communities in web3 very few of them are involved with meaningful governance right like i mean decision making is still very centralized even in these communities that are apparently decentralized, right? And everything, they'll come back and they'll be like, oh, like, when do you want the mint date to be? Or like, you know, when do you want, what, what color of this logo should we make? And that's all good. You can get voting on that, but really meaningful decisions are still pretty much centralized. Um, and there is, there is a huge opportunity there. And then there's just VR and AR, like as we enter this world where like a lot of our real life is gonna collide, how do we protect people? How do we protect the vulnerable? How do we protect, you know, from all of the vices that we had in the real life that we had finally generated systems for, now we have to transfer all of that into the virtual world. And, and you know, I, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think there's going to be a lot of that. So I, I completely agree with you, like having that check of being like, as an industry, let's get together before this gets too out of hand, let's right. be proactive about yeah. it, I think. That's that's it. I sit there and do you think about like the Facebook story, right? When the movie came out, I don't know how much of it was actually true or not, but I sat there and I could see it was like snowballing and nowhere is anybody maybe really thinking like, well, if we do this, could this happen? And those are the questions I want to see that we as the people that are the innovators, the creators, the thought leaders that are creating things to make things easier, to make life easier, save money, whatever, and time. We need to be going, okay, so if we do this, what about this? Yeah, and 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 it's a hard one, right? Because it's so fast-paced and, and you get swept away in this tide of innovation. And I think the last one is AI, right? As well, like, I mean, we all know there's so much conversation around AI and who the data, who the content belongs to and how do you use it and then, you know, I mean, obviously jobs, what's that going to do for jobs and everything? I've been generating art um, on AI and like blog posts and Twitter posts, and I just absolutely enjoy it and love it. But I can also see, like you said, where is it going to stop and who, what what do we do about it? And, and what is this going to lead to? So, yeah, important conversations to have. So um, we could be those people that start that type of a movement. I completely, you, you're going to need some people, right? That That are like, hey, sorry to be that party pooper but here we go like you know let's let's take a pause and how are we going to do this i think that's a part of what world economic forum uh tries to bring awareness to is looking at the the beauty and but also what could be ugly because technology has both sides we've, we've seen that again and again right like any innovation has that side well people have both sides we have an angel side we have a devil side so for sure. And for we're sure. the ones creating it. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah. 
So what is the best mentoring advice that you would like to share with our listeners? Because this is almost the last question other than how can we get in contact with you? But what is the best advice? And we have everybody across the board, all different industry, different ages, everything. Um, Get out of your own way. I think uh, for me, it's like, don't self-doubt, imposter syndrome, whatever you want to call it. Are, are all excuses to to not do what you want to do. I've heard so much of like, you know, well, I didn't go to school for this or well, I, I don't know how or like, you know, well, I, I don't belong or like, you know, I don't have the time for this or something. We have so many of those of those things we tell ourselves to protect ourselves because we're scared of failing and we're scared that we're going to go down the road that's going to lead to rejection and disappointment and we protect ourselves. and it's it's well-meaning you know and even even some others protect us because they're like oh I want to protect you like don't don't try this because it might not work yes sure it might not work but then you know it right you've learned something from it so I think for me I am non-tech solo or whatever woman of color east coast never went to business school never went to tech school um and and yeah here I am leading a web3 gaming company and I am learning every single day and half the time I have no idea what I'm doing, but guess what? I show up every single day and, and you know what? I learn something and I make mistakes and I fa- fa- you know, fall forward and I fall fast and, and that's what you need to do and just get up and keep going. So I would say just get out of your own way. It's like, you know, I mean, very few excuses are actually not excuses. They're reasons. Everything else I think is an excuse. So there's very few that are real reasons. So yeah. Totally agree with you. Totally, totally, totally. Sound advice. So how can our listeners contact you? We usually share the website and your personal LinkedIn page, but you know, I know we talked about social channels. What social channels are you active on? The company. Yeah. So actually, Isabella, I'm building in public on Twitter. So at Gaming for Dev is my personal one, and at Breshna Game is the is the you know handle for Breshna. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we just share every single day, like the highs and the lows of entrepreneurship, the journey, fundraising, everything. So you know that's a really cool way. I'm all over my DMs, so like I always respond. I always check my DMs. I check my LinkedIn messages and I check my emails. So I will make sure I provide all of those to you. And if they're provided with the, with the podcast yeah. and the interview, we made I, I card that's at the end of the show so people can see it, but we also put it in the, uh, in the post because we want people to reach out. That's awesome. And I am always willing to, to have a conversation and pay back. I know you are. I know you are. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I look forward to the next conversation, whenever that one might be. For sure. And thank you for having me. This was such an awesome conversation. Thank you for those thoughtful questions. Um, And just like, you know, thank you for being you. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope we're going to talk again soon. We will. Thanks so much. Thank you, Zapello. I want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and thank you to our production team, Josue Gonzalez, Gio Vargas, Dina Burks, and Lester Eccles. We also want to acknowledge music is by Sophie Lloyd. You want to visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future of work. We want to thank you for supporting the Interim Whisperer podcast, which is an affiliated program of Employers for Change, and subscribing to our show on Podbean or your favorite podcast channel.